Hello and welcome to Mobile Interactions Now, the podcast where industry pros share first-hand experiences on making mobile experiences work. I'm Chris and I'm part of the team here at Tintech. On today's episode, we sit down with Chris Pook, the VP of Retention at List, and find out what it means to shop for fashion in the era of Google and Spotify. So without further ado, let's get right into the episode. Take it away, Gene. Why don't you give the listeners a little bit of your background? I cover some in the intro, but I'm sure they would love to hear more. Um, so my name's Chris Pook. Uh, I'm currently VP uh, of Customer Retention at List. Uh, and this, for those uh, people that don't know, is a global fashion search platform. So it essentially aggregates uh, all the fashion in the world into one site and allows people to sort of access it and buy it uh, through that site. Uh, my role here is sort of a classically growth and retention role. So I sort of touch on uh, mobile CRM, uh, customer care element of the business. Uh, and we're here to drive growth and retention through uh, sort of delivering value through the product. Um, I've had about 15 years experience, uh, sort of mostly in the marketing slash sort of product space. Uh, so before uh, List, I've worked charity side, I've worked uh, in the travel sector for Carnival. Uh, and before that, I've worked in some sort of small sort of startup uh, sort of regional businesses. You've got a lot of great background to cover what we are going to talk about today then, which is basically how e-commerce platforms are using mobile technology and data to improve customer retention and growth. Um, Recently, we are seeing a lot of changes in how brands are interacting with the consumers, especially by fashion tech or any other tech-savvy brands who are learning really fast from CRM and data-driven companies such as Amazon and Spotify. So that's the first place I want to start with. Last I checked, um, I think it was around 150 million shoppers and close to 4 million SKUs your platform list is handling. Given, Given that, congratulations, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. Given that kind of scale and dynamics you are in, in terms of matching buyers with the sellers, I expect List to be a heavy user of data on both ends of the interaction. Can you start by describing what is different in your customer journey versus like traditional shopping experience, say when buying from a department store, for example? So the interesting thing about our model is that effectively we're an affiliate site. So we're a sort of middleman in terms of that sort of marketplace uh, sort of aspect. So whilst we uh, support and serve e-commerce, you don't directly check out on our site. So we'll uh, put you in touch with the retailers and the various other e-commerce sites. So we're sort of effectively that that middleware and that sort of middleman in that sort of transaction. Now that's interesting from a sort of two angles for us really in terms of sort of data. A, how we sort of monetize that. So uh, currently we we generally work on a, a rev share model with most of our partners. So they'll pay us per per sale or a percentage of uh, per sale. Um, and the in sort of interesting thing there in the dynamics, the market that we're seeing shift, particularly in the mobile space actually is around, um, you know, that's all done on a cookie basis today. So we drop some cookies, you know, those cookies convert into sales and we get paid via the uh, networks and the resellers. Now in a mobile environment, you know, the technology there essentially uh, prohibits a lot of those, the lifetime of those cookies. And it makes it very difficult for us to track that, um, you know, that sort of 
uh, aspect really. Um, so we're sort of experimenting with actually how we change that model actually on a, from a mobile point of view and supplement that towards sort of engagement. And what that then means is that it becomes much more uh, of that upper funnel sort of targeting in terms of how we actually play that role. Um, so in terms of the data that we use to sort of profile and target and those sorts of things, it's all about building up a, a preference of a user's favorite brands essentially so if we're going to sort of pull you back into the platform at a higher level as opposed to try and sort of get you close to yeah that sort of high intent uh, purchase and push you onto a retailer if we're going to effectively jump a couple of steps up that funnel and say well actually we want to get you in uh, looking at brands and sort of pulling you into the platform that earlier stage we really really need to know um you know how you uh, what brands you interact with uh, what are the, the value points that you look for regularly so are you a regular sales shopper is that sort of once or twice a year um do you check in with certain brands across certain categories or not um so what we tend to do we sort of generally have quite a cold start problem as well in terms of uh sort of users that we generally get to the site so a lot of people have sort of come on list at their first time when we first get them so a lot of the early stage of the platform is us about building engagement and interaction so we're getting people to look at brands, look at products that we can build this profile. Uh, and from that, we then cluster. So we've got a fairly sort of complex cluster mapping uh, sort of architecture underneath that allows us to say, uh, based on interactions with particular brands, particular products, to map that out and do some brand adjacency where we can say, if you like brands X, Y, and Z, you probably like these other sets of brands too. That's really interesting. And how you are able to actually adapt your business model, um, you know, because the whole interaction is changing to mobile. And that is a great example. It really tells a lot about what you are thinking of. Have you uh, actually seen business impact already or how long has this been? So we've seen a, a decent amount of business impact. So I've been in the business sort of two and a half years. Uh, and even in that time, mobile was big then, but it's huge now. It's a, a huge uh, sort of element of the, the fashion space particularly. Um, so it's something we haven't been able to ignore. You know, we've, we've always not been able to monetize uh, the app uh, revenue in the same way that we can do with desktop and, and sort of online revenue traditionally under the affiliate model. Um, but because of the rise of mobile, it's something we can't ignore. You know, as a business, we have to adapt to the market and to customer behavior. So from our point of view, it's fundamental to understand how we can actually monetize that model and how we can actually, um, from a business point of view, um, add value to the mobile space and those sort of interactions. So, yeah, we've seen revenue significant increase we've been experimenting with uh, a cpc model which is cost per click uh, as opposed to a uh, cpa model as we call it so which is a, a share of uh, a purchase and what that then forces us to do is effectively build a platform uh, and a product essentially that is geared around people engaging with it which you know sounds like the obvious thing to do anyway but maybe that isn't always the case when we're optimized around revenue and around um sort of pushing people basically from high intent searches through to you know, a store effectively so from our point of view it's been a real sort of injection of, of of a pivot and a change of uh direction for the business really not only from a how do we monetize this better but also how do we actually create a product which is much more sympathetic to how people shop fashion online you talked about a little bit about in the beginning what kind of data you are using to inform your decisions. But when you are looking at the entire customer journey and see some of the system domains involved, um, be that previous purchase history, user preferences, or you know identity management, do you feel you have enough visibility to make those decisions? 
No, it's a, it's a really interesting question, actually. And, you know, I think the general assumption for a business like ours, like you mentioned at the top, you know, we're at 6 million in stock SKUs, 30 million in total, including sort of outstock products. We've got something like uh, 14,000 stores uh, sort of on the platform. So you think with that amount of data, you know, we get, uh, you know, sort of 6 million sort of new users on uh, a week. You think with that sort of data and those sort of levels of interaction would be, you know, one of the richest uh, you know, data businesses around. Now, the interesting thing from our point of view is that you mentioned purchase data. Um, but as an affiliate, effectively a middleman, we don't get any of that. We get really patchy uh, data back from purchases. So we can see that a purchase has happened. We might be able to see a category level, but it's very patchy to match back deterministically to a customer. Now, that presents you know, some you know, really obvious challenges around, well, actually, if we're going to talk to customers about products that interested in or they've shown an interest in on the site we don't actually know if they bought them or not so in a classic e-commerce scenario we can if we were looking at retargeting or abandonment type activity um you don't generally stop that when someone's purchased right uh when someone's bought the thing or something similar uh for us we don't always know or we don't know certainly within you know that sort of 48 hours um and we may never be able to push that back in um so from our point of view we have to base a lot of our decisions on using browse data and then making some predictions and some assumptions on that to allow us to execute campaign data in real time, but also execute stuff around preferences and things like that. So actually, from our point of view, as a middleman and an affiliate, um, yeah, the data landscape is really challenging for us, actually. Seeing how a lot of decisions are you know, becoming more automated by many brands, um, the the landscape data landscape you're just describing um are you uh, where are you at in terms of, uh, of being able to make some of the automated decisions in terms of what content to push to you know which type of fashion shoppers so we've put a lot of emphasis into that sort of real-time uh, update, particularly in terms of our uh, sort of ranking algorithms, as we call them. So these are the things that you know, decide what products we show you if you're looking at a jeans feed, for example. Now, you know, the problem I mentioned at the top around sort of that cold start issue where a lot of people come to the platform uh, and we know nothing about them at that point. We have to then, uh, through interactions and through uh, positioning things in certain ways, start to update a user's profile on the fly, essentially, to be able to then start to prove to them that you know we can actually handle uh, their query you know so from a customer from a business perspective you know having all these products is a fantastic thing but it presents us with a real customer challenge in that no one wants to be presented with six million products um, because no one wants is interested in six million products we have to try and take that six million and break that down to you know, thousands essentially in most most cases um, so we put a lot of emphasis into the on the fly uh, sort of algorithm updates in terms of uh, how that works. But we also then try and store and persist those preferences that when we see a user again, uh, particularly if they're a member, but even if not, we store that, uh, which is again a challenge in the mobile space around persistency in, in terms of browser and cookie settings to allow us to store you know, preferences that we may have built in session one. Uh, but we try and then flow that through and make those sort of automated decisions in terms of what we show you. Um, on the campaign side of things, uh, in terms of our sort of push strategy, if you like, uh, so that involves sort of email notifications and those sorts of things. A lot of that is, you know, sort of we've come up with a lot of challenges like we've just described around when we should actually um, try and push for uh, certain things or launch certain notifications based on not knowing if someone's bought something or not knowing if something's of a significant interest or not. So we've built some some models to allow us to, effectively some propensity models to allow us to identify on a user level 
the items they've looked at uh, and how likely they are to buy them. And that allows us to set some thresholds to say, uh, you know, if, if certain products are below certain thresholds, you know, they're probably not of a sufficient interest to use for us to warrant push communication. So email notifications or push notifications via the app and those sorts of things. Um, and we found that super successful in trying to manage, uh, you know, sort of some of the many messages and some of the many sort of push aspects that we can push in front of people um, to make sure that we're providing information on products that people like. You just mentioned some of the uh, use cases, notifications and things in that nature. And and given, you know, about 150 million shoppers, um, uh, I'm guessing there are preferences when it comes to communication channels they are most responsive to, you know, may vary greatly sometimes. Some may prefer texting versus push notifications, uh, some emails, some chat apps, um, what are you seeing among your customers? We actually see that email is really dominant, uh, in, particularly in terms of that sort of push strategy. Um, so we sort of combine uh, email with various other sort of what we call you know, push forms communication, so push notifications on, on the app. Uh, we're also experimenting with sort of browser notifications along that um, aspect as well. We also do uh, push advertising in terms of sort of uh, dedicated Facebook uh, advertising per user. Uh, but email on pretty much every level, from an engagement level, from an incremental value uh, level, from a revenue level, it you know it trumps everything. So you know, email traditionally has always been a, a big element of the fashion space. It's a, a key way that a lot of people start their shopping journeys with you know brand retailers and, and those sorts of stores um but we we find it uh have the same impact for us so we use it as a way to pull people back into the platform essentially so there's various sort of forms of value that we can offer that so we offer sort of a range of tracking tools so uh because we've got so much data uh, and so many products we can track when prices drop on particular products we can track when things are back in stock if they're out of stock and those sorts of things so we offer these sort of utility services to customers to to make sure that you know they can get uh, the value uh, out of having so much data that we have um but we can also then extend that and look at sort of brand level preferences and let uh, users know when certain brands are on sale, uh, when there's new brands they may be interested uh, and they can track sort of, you know, those uh, designer category level searches, so Gucci bags, those sorts of things. Um, and we also take, you know, what's sort of the, uh, probably a big change over the last year for us in terms of how we approach email is uh, viewing it with that sort of incrementality lens. So it's very easy to get sucked into email being a really super effective tool to drive engagement, to drive revenue, to drive all those things. Uh, and then to hone in on where the biggest opportunities are to drive that engagement. And that tends to be with the people that are most active, right? Um, so what we tend to do in terms of our sort of email stuff or the sort of changes that we're sort of currently going through there uh, is to make sure that we are looking incrementally. So if people are super active on the platform and getting the value that we want them to get, you know, we leave them to it. Um, if they're not, or we think actually we can enhance their value experience and we can deliver more to them by letting them know about features that they may not be interacting with or if certain things happen around products they like, we then view that incrementally and say, well, actually, how can we add to that via our push strategies, or via email, via push notifications and draw people in that way? Uh, and that allows us to get this sort of balance between uh, sort of frequency uh, and making sure that we're driving people back into the platform to experience the things they need. Just curious, because uh, that is uh, slightly contrary to what I often hear these days, meaning, uh, you know, a lot of brands are finding that customers are actually increasingly wanting to have a more personalized real-time communications. 
um, basically the same way they are communicating and interacting with their friends, um, you know, two-way messaging and things in the nature rather than emails, which is, um, you know, it's a time delay and, and mostly one-way communication. Um, do you see any of that trend catching up with your user base? I think it depends on sort of the value that we're offering. So I think in terms of that real time, uh, sort of almost like chat type interface, uh, we're trialing a, a new sort of adjacent product actually, which uh, offers real time sort of personal shopping assistance effectively. Um, but that only really serves a particular type of use case, which is I want to buy something now. I've got a particular problem that I can't solve through your traditional UI, through your search uh, capabilities. Um, I'm stuck. Effectively, somebody help me. So there's some really cool stuff that we're trying to do with that to allow uh, us to help people better when they get stuck, you know, when there's a bump in the road that we can't help them with. But moreover, the value that we offer is through tracking, is through those things. It's less real-time uh, in terms of the, the customer's experience. So if uh, you know, a customer likes a particular beauty bag, for example, uh, wants to track that item um, to see if it goes on sale, that inherently has a, a lag to it. I, it's not on sale right now, but it might be in the next week, two, two weeks, a month, whatever. So the trick for us is to make sure that we don't let that relationship go cold. So you know, someone says, "Hey, I want this Gucci bag. Uh, I'm prepared to wait for it to go on sale. Let you know, get back in touch when it is." Um, you know, the, the the potential for us is that that doesn't come back in for three or four weeks. So how do we keep that user engaged and looking at? things that they like and making sure that they're seeing the value in the platform all the while that we're searching for that in the background. So from our point of view, the use cases actually are, are sort of manifold, you know, in terms of when someone's actively looking to make a purchase there and then, you know, that real-time help and that real-time assistance is crucial, I think. Um, and I think people are ever more demanding there in terms of if your search capabilities, if your browsing capabilities aren't up to scratch, you need to augment that through chat and through those sorts of things. Um, but I think, you know, for a lot of brands still, the, the inherent value they offer isn't in the moment. Um, I think the inherent value, and that's certainly the case with us, the inherent value that users and members will come back to on a regular basis is periodic. It's checking in on new items from you know, brands and stores you like. It's tracking sale you know, promos and price drops and items that you like. It's, let, it's us letting you know when there's you know, new collections and new um, sort of brands to discover. So for us, it's about trying to make those relevant and trying to keep those relationships alive over the long term, which is really you know, sort of key challenge. As a consumer, um, I consider myself as a shopper who prizes convenience. But fashion is, is one thing I still buy from, well, I can't even count how many sources. Uh, a lot less now than a few years ago, but still. Um, which makes me really wonder if, um, you know, buying fashion is really a search problem or something that's intrinsically different about it. Uh, versus shopping for other things. Uh, what does your data say? I think it's a really, that's a really sort of key insight, actually. And I think it's an insight that's really at the heart of how we're driving product and growth development at this, actually. So I think you're absolutely right. I think, um, you know, the, the fashion landscape is quite complex, actually, in terms of how people shop for fashion. I think you know, there are sort of various components to it in terms of you know, where people go for inspiration and, and sort of style advice. Uh, and we see that, you know, the likes of Instagram and Pinterest uh, and still the sort of classical publications, you know, sort of publications like, you know, the Vogue's and things like that, you know, are leading there. People are getting their style, you know, tipped in that way. You know, retailers have always historically done a good job there. So through their edit and sort of, you know, various editorial content to sort of try and stimulate ideas and new trends. Um, and then it's a case of, you know, sort of how we sort of 
try and take that and how much of that is repeatable and regular for us to try and take and you know, build into a platform. So you know, actually consumers generally quite like going to look at nice sort of fashion imagery. You know, it's something they, they like and find um, sort of pleasure in on, on a commute or actually just you know, like spending a couple of hours scrolling through lovely, lovely items. Um, and, you know, so we've got to figure out as a, as a product and as a, a, as a thing that we can offer in terms of value to the customer, you know, where we sit within that journey, you know, where's the jumping off point where someone says, right, hey, now I need this. Um, so generally speaking, we say, you know, leave the inspiration to the, the guys that do it best. Um, we're here to basically keep a track on the things that you sort of know you like historically. So we roughly look at it sort of across, there's 50% of sort of predictable searches that you make regularly. So these are things like you, know, you go to the what's new page on your favorite store, or, or you might search for Gucci bags, or you might search for uh, a particular brand, you know, on a sort of semi-regular basis, maybe once every week or two weeks or once a month. Then you've got the unpredictable searches, which are, Hey, right. I've got a hot day uh, next week. I need a new dress or I'm going on holiday uh, in two weeks. Find me some Hawaiian shirts or what's the, you know, the style going to Ibiza, those sorts of things. Um, and we sort of treat those two things differently and separately. And I think the sort of second half of that in terms of that search stuff is where we're sort of in trying to tackle it slightly differently to try and um, bring together all of those different sources to allow people to query that large inventory in different ways. So searching by occasion, which isn't a common way to search today, searching by particular style tags, those sorts of things. Uh, and then on the other side of that, which is sort of the retention sort of growth angle, it's sort of understanding those underlying preferences as customers. So generally speaking, yeah, a lot of customers today start and finish their journey on a retail store. So they might go to a particular department store or a particular boutique or whatever it might be, but they generally say, right, I need some jeans or I'm interested in sort of looking at what's new. I'm going to go there, start my search there and, and probably end up finishing and buying something there over a sort of a period of time. So from our point of view, we then have to sort of tap into that, that sort of convenience and that ease thing, but also being able to pull together all the things that a retailer potentially can do for you there and trying to make that, uh, easier for the customer, uh, more valuable for the customer to, for them to come back and do that through us on a regular basis. Now, shifting a little bit uh, to the perspective of, uh, you know, what's happening on the operational level, can you walk us through your toolkit a little bit and help us imagine how we are using what to achieve, you know, what kind of goals? Sure. So um, we're lucky enough that we've got, you know, a decent engineering set up here. So we tend to build over buy in most cases but we generally take the view of whatever gets us to where we need to get to quicker uh, is how we get there um so in terms of the analytical stack um we have just implemented a sort of first level um sort of cross-device tracking system that allows us we call it a sort of consolidated view of the customer um and that allows us to basically bind together all the device ID interactions to a unique user ID. So historically, before then, we'd always needed a uh, user ID via membership, so someone to sign up or log in to um, generate a user ID that we track against. Um, but a large, large before, uh, portion of our traffic is uh, either new to the site or doesn't have a, a, a login or a, a membership. So we've now created a bunch of uh, user IDs for every single device that we see, so we can basically join and stitch together um, those uh, devices across uh, you know, those many devices to that sort of single customer. Uh, and that allows us to do a few things in terms of being able to persist preferences when we see a user pop up on a different device. It also allows us to model much better so we can take clusters of users that do similar things and you know, manage to join the data that way. Uh, but it also allows us to create audiences to target with through ads, so through you know, paid media and, and social media and those sorts of things. We can now target 
and particularly use them more effectively and get bigger reach that way by knowing it's a, a particular customer. Um, in terms of uh, sort of the website, the app uh, sort of side of things, we've sort of got two uh, sides to it. So we've got the sort of algorithm set up, if you like, which uh, allows us to basically uh, put the products on site and serve them in a way that should hopefully make sense to customers. Uh, and there's sort of two real processes to that effectively. One is what we call deduplication. So as you can imagine with uh, you know, 6 million products or 30 million if you include the outstock products, uh, some of those uh, are in there from uh, different retailers, same products. So we need to what we call dedupe uh, or merge these products together to allow us to say, right, this Gucci bag exists at four different sites and we put it together as one product and understand that. Um, and we do that in a couple of ways. We get some data from our retailers. Um, unfortunately, some of that is inconsistent. So not every retailer gives us the same level of information um, to allow us to track. So we're looking at how we can sort of leverage things like GTINs and that sort of stuff to make that process easier. Uh, but we also do uh, what we call internally as perception, which is like image recognition. Uh, and that allows us to do two different things. It allows us to basically look at products that look similar and merge them. Uh, and it also allows us to use the product imagery to generate tags and generate descriptions effectively, which we tend to find actually is a bit more reliable than relying on feeds and metadata that we get from, from retailers. Um, but when we do that, because of the sort of sensitivity around that, we have like a human layer that, that signs that off effectively or approves that. So we'll use our algorithms to generate the potential merges and potential duplicates, and then we'll have a human sort of, uh, we use a crowdsourcing platform that effectively has an eye cast over that to agree whether that's um, been merged uh, correctly or not. Uh, and then on the website of things, we try and take all of that. Uh, and we've got, um, we've only got the iOS app at the moment uh, because the vast majority of our um, sort of user base, actually about 85% is iOS. So we haven't actually extended that beyond uh, into Android just yet, but that's coming very soon, actually. Uh, and yeah, and then we take that and we've got a, um, well, we're just trying to move over to a node React stack to uh, allow us to be, um, uh, create a better uh different experience of people on top so they can actually query that inventory uh, in much more detail. In terms of ROI, uh, among the things that uh, you were talking about, um, any sense as to what worked best for your growth strategy? Can you give us a, a specific example? So the sort of thing we always come back to is delivering value regularly. So in terms of growth, you know, that's the fundamental to it. So there's many different channel strategies, many different ways that we can sort of execute on that. But at a fundamental level, if a user doesn't get value out of the platform, you know, there's a very slim chance they're going to come back. So from our perspective, you know, the biggest ROI drivers uh, or the biggest value that we see in terms of that sort of LTV perspective that we tend to look at the best uh, is around delivering value. The, the quickest way generally for us to do that for a customer is through uh, sort of price alerts and those sorts of things. That tends to be the, the thing that we can deliver on uh, more regularly and more quickly. So if a user uh, wants a price drop on a particular item, um, we've got a much higher chance because of the nature of you know, the discounts that are available online of being able to deliver that to a customer than a back in stock, uh, which you know, may not be may not ever come back in stock based on the um sort of availability of the item and how long it's been out of stock. So we tend to focus heavily around the what we call activation strategies around trying to get people to see the value quickly. Um, so as I say, there's sort of two ways that we can prove that really quickly. One is to get people to see that they can save money through this by uh, tracking items and thus delivering sort of price and promo drops to them. Um, the other aspect to that is getting them to set up uh, what we call sort of lists or broader searches. So this is 
getting us to tell you the sorts of things that you, you know, do regularly. So like we mentioned uh, just before around that sort of predictable search element, you know, what brands do you track regularly? Do you, are you interested in new items or actually that you care too much? Are you interested in specific uh, designer category combinations that we can tap into? Uh, and we basically ask users to set up a particular, particular list within that that we can then play back to them and, and sort of deliver value. That also allows us to sort of underpin some of those uh, sort of profile and analytical challenges that we can play into recommendations. Um, and as we sort of mentioned before, the biggest driver of that actually today is, is email and doing that intelligently. Um, but we see the biggest long-term engagements. We sort of take a life cycle approach. So we generally tend to acquire people uh, via paid search. We tend to then try and uh, acquire sort of membership and deliver value to them through email. And then we try and migrate them onto the app, which has a much higher, which is much better at the pull aspect of, of that sort of retention growth uh, sort of model. So there's, you know, when people get to a certain point, they uh, we push the app onto them. And that's a you know, really great way for people to uh, easily access brands, those searches and things in a much more sympathetic way. So it's less about us pushing those notifications and that value onto you much more about you coming and download, uh, opening the app and using it in that way to get that value. So curious, um, what would you say the percentage of uh, your user base actually um, interacting through your app on mobile versus their computer? So it's interesting. I mean, this is probably a split that, that you know, a lot of brands, a lot of products see. So in terms of the engagement factor that we mentioned before, uh, it's up to about 70%. Uh, of those devices. So if we take that consolidated device view, uh, about 70% of those devices are mobile devices, uh, which is an absolutely enormous scale that we're operating on. Uh, but in terms of a revenue output, uh, only about, I think it's about 16% of those devices convert a mobile device. Uh, and it's that sort of data and that sort of level uh, that's prompted us to sort of look at that revenue model uh, and say, well, actually, from a, from a revenue standpoint, you know, people still aren't purchasing a mobile. Uh, and some of that's the, the technical challenges around cookies. And some of that's still a fundamental shift around, well, actually, they do a lot of research, a lot of browsing, a lot of you know, checking in on stuff they like on mobile, but actually still pull the trick on a desktop device. I understand uh, your users are not actually making purchase transactions on your platform, but are you performing any kind of uh, security measures to make sure your users are you know, genuine human beings or anything like that? So the way we tend to do that is actually when users uh, sign up uh, and become members. Um, so we then um, sort of go through and do uh, sort of validation on that and that sort of two-step process essentially. Um, but effectively, you know, upfront before that, uh, we tend to, in terms of the background, we obviously keep our data secure in terms of that device matching element. Um, we don't do any specific uh, other than the sort of standard um, safety measures that any website or, or app sort of puts in place. We don't do anything specific on top of that, uh, apart from safeguarding our data in the back end, obviously. In some ways, uh, I find shopping is uh, local, I mean, culturally and otherwise, including, um, you know, privacy and security regulations we just talked about a little bit. Um, sk speaking from my own experience, actually, I find buying something online here in Germany can be very different compared to you know what I was used to back in the states, um, where you know there are any specific barriers you had to overcome in a specific market. 
either you know on the front or on the back end? So I think that's a that's a really interesting point. Actually, I think it's a really uh, good observation, uh, and I think it's one that's absolutely true, uh, sort of in fashion. You know, I think there's sort of two aspects to it. I think you know, fashion inherently is quite a tactile thing. You know, people buy stuff to wear that they like, uh, and some people, you know, the online experience will never replace that ability to go into a shop and you know, be treated well and try and a bunch of stuff. Um, so, you know, we don't try and sort of tend to cater for that. I think, you know, the cultural difference is an interesting one. We're actually just uh, going through a localization uh, sort of expansion route at the moment. So we're, we're focusing on sort of Western Europe uh, with a view to then sort of extending into sort of Asia and beyond. Um, and, you know, a lot of that comes down to uh, sort of assortment. Uh, so, you know, the, the retailers uh, having a local slant um, and also the, the sort of products which trend slightly differently across different regions. Um, because there are different you know, shipping considerations, you know, particularly. So, you know, back in you know, a few years ago, back in sort of some of the more early days of the platform, we'd have a fantastic amount of inventory, fantastic amount of products. Uh, we'd connect someone with a product they like, uh, but then they get stung with a £20 uh, or $20 uh, sort of duty fee because it'd be coming from a different country that, that isn't supported within the sort of tax. And it's hard for us to be able to communicate that to the user so that that sort of part of that relationship that they would sort of put onto us and quite rightly sort of broke down. So they you know find the thing they love, which is what we're here to do essentially. But actually, part of that process breaks down because there's they get slapped with a, a big sort of juicy fee at the end of that, which clearly breaks down that sort of value that, that we're trying to offer to the user. So we've had to put an awful lot of effort into trying to match uh, the right retailers, the right shipping uh, requirements with the right locations, the right domains, the right uh, sort of areas of the world. Um, the other aspect, as you mentioned, in terms of uh, sort of service element as well, is that you know quite often with a middleman and, and quite often users don't see us like that. Uh, so they see us intrinsically as part of that buying process. So um, yeah, when someone you know, finds their product through list that goes through to the retailer, they then are in the retailer's hands and they'll check out with the retailer, and it's up to them to fulfil and deliver that that item that they bought. Now, if something goes wrong there, so the item gets lost or delayed or delivered or there's an issue with returns or whatever, um, quite often we're then brought into that process. So people think that obviously we're culpable in some way or we're actually part of that process where actually it's just the reseller entirely. So part of our job actually is to try and be as clear about where the boundaries in terms of the customer journey we sit and make sure that people are clear that we're now passing off to a retailer, it's, it's their issue. But quite often we have to then get in and try and smooth over some of those uh, times when it goes wrong. So, you know, if you ever look at reviews of listing, you know, a large portion of them are around just actually logistically things going wrong as opposed to just the experience of the site and the app itself in terms of how, you know, how well it can make you uh, sort of find uh, sort of fashion that you like. So we have to step in and we've got a team of people that sort of work with, you know, various people across the world to then try and help manage those relationships as well. And, and here's my last question. Um, uh, looking at... What you are experimenting right now, I'm assuming um, you're keep looking, trying different things. Um, any thoughts or uh, plans on changes you, you want to bring about and some of the uh, concerns that you might have? So I think the big shift we sort of talked about, you know, a little bit so far, and it's the sort of shift in terms of sort of revenue model. So we're testing out CPC in certain markets um, and seeing if that's a better way to monetize uh, sort of higher upper funnel traffic, particularly mobile. So that's a big thing that we're sort of gravitating towards. Uh, the other is sort of extending our value through these this push strategy, these notifications and all the different forms that takes. So uh, as, as I mentioned before, emails are sort of dominant. 
channel that we see yeah, working really well there, but looking at how we extend not only the functionality within that, but also the different touch points and channels that we can offer. So, you know, browser notifications, uh, different elements like that. Um, but really for us as well, yeah, there's a real massive challenge around uh, emerging deduplication, getting accurate price information. So with such a big inventory, uh, it means that we're always fighting hard to make sure that the products that we have on site are accurate in terms of the price, accurate in terms of the stock, uh, and also that we can merge and deduplicate you know, those products to make sure that we give a good experience to, to customers. Um, and that is getting ever harder, actually, with the amount of retailers that we bring on, the amount of... Um, different technologies that, that retailers adopt. So not everyone has a common you know, e-commerce platform, a common data structure, a common taxonomy. And that's getting ever more fragmented, actually, with the you know, sort of vendor selections out there for, for different retailers. So um, we're working towards how we can sort of try and standardize and systemize that and codify that for, for our retailers to make their lives and our lives much easier and make sure that we can sort of really deliver that experience that is truly sort of bringing together all of those items across, across the web into one thing. Actually, I have a, another question in terms of, um, I remember um, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with um, a fashion brand here um, in Munich. And, you know, we are talking about this possibility of uh, using this um, two-way messaging and dialogue basically to get better insight as to what the user is is liking, you know, in terms of colors and and those things. It's basically using communication as a data applications to to gain those insights about the users versus um, uh, rather than just uh, you know a channel for communication. Is is any of that um, something that you are thinking about as well? Yeah, so sure. I mean, I think there's sort of two aspects to how we how we look at uh, sort of that data aggregation piece. So I think one aspect is that direct interaction. So I think looking at ways that we can weave that direct action interaction into you know the product value that we offer, um, and that's through you know helping people uh, with particular queries. So you know, as uh, say with this personal shopping element, if we can't solve it through search or through the browse uh, sort of general activity that we have. How can we offer something on top of that, and how can we then leverage you know, some of those, you know, sort of real key insights within that? The other aspect is how we can join together offline information, and that's all got two two purposes really. One is to make sure that we can understand what customers are buying actually offline, because um, we know that it's a, a you know, the vast majority of the research uh, element of uh, fashion or the browsing element of fashion is done online, but still a decent chunk is actually offline, or the majority actually of it is still offline in stores. Um, so how we can join together that information from the customer as to what they're actually purchasing. So you know, there's a real leakage there in terms of our revenue model uh, if we're being used as an engagement platform, which again suits this CPC model a little bit more. Um, but there's a real leakage there in terms of if people are using you know, the platform or the app to look at a bunch of stuff, find some things, find the stores available, then just going down to their local store to buy that. Uh, that's great value that we've added, but there's a leakage there in terms of our sort of revenue model. So how we can join that up, uh, but also how we can try to stitch that offline bit back into this online journey. So actually, if the product's out of stock, can we uh, try and join together offline inventory into that? Um, if uh, there is actually a better price available in store or better or a size availability, can we connect directly to that store within the platform? So a lot of that then is surfacing this offline inventory. And again, we've got challenges with the amount of online inventory that we have. We're looking at them ways at how we can weave that information in to offer that as a better service but then also what are those opportunities where 
a personal touch really matters. Um, you know, so for high spending VIP customers, for you know people that don't that we can't meet that have a very specific uh, search query that we can't meet through our sort of traditional tools, how can we offer services and things on top of that that um, you know really heighten the experience, but also means that we can learn a lot more about that customer. It sounds like a very fast moving industry you are in. Um, is there any resources you want our audience to check out to learn more about the topic and and what you are doing? So I think we've got a, a few uh, some internal sources that if anyone's interested about the list journey specifically, to so search uh, made uh, made by list uh, online. Uh, we've also got some medium stuff uh, that's worth checking out from both a sort of growth and marketing and a sort of an engineering standpoint. Um, we also sort of. Uh, look to you know, a lot of work that, that Brian Baltimore and those guys do around growth and stuff like that a really good indicator for us in terms of you know, the value add stuff that we can then look to you know, hang our technology and our, our things off the back of. With that, I would like to thank you, Chris, very much for sharing your thoughts with us. And that was a lot of topics we covered. Thanks for having me, Jean. Absolute pleasure. Thank you again to Chris Pook for joining us today. You can find out more about Chris and List at list.com. That's L-Y-S-T dot com. To find out more about Gene and Tentech, visit Tentech.com. And make sure to search for Mobile Interactions Now in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Tentech, thanks for listening.